John chapter 20 today is where we're going to be. If you haven't been with us uh, for some time, then you may not know this, but we have been walking through the book of John together uh, from chapter 1, verse 1, to the point that we are now in chapter 20. And so we are just about done. And uh, this man, really from here on out, this book is just so good uh, and, and has been, I feel like I say that every week, what am I thinking right now, right? It's been good for a long time, and there's just so many uh, neat things we've been able to see in this book, and today is no different. Uh, it's a short passage, we're only looking at five verses, but uh, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm even at this very moment thinking, what can I trim from the things that I want to say? Because there's a lot to be said about these short verses that we're going to look at today. I'll start with just a, uh, a principle that uh, power dependence in a material world is weakness, right? Uh, power dependence in a material world, this world is weakness. I, I'm going to use an illustration to mention kind of what I'm talking about there. Uh, power dependence is a weakness in our world because uh, what happens when the power goes out, right? Um, I'm weak. I'm just going to go ahead and confess that to you right now. And when the power goes out, I'm reminded of my weakness. Before we lived in Meridian, we lived in a small town called Millport, Alabama, which is in West Alabama, really close to Columbus, Mississippi. And it's a town of about 1,000 people. Uh, when the power goes out there and anywhere, typically the power company goes to the most population-dense places and restores their power first. Makes sense, but really stinks whenever you're one of the little guys, right? Uh, and we were when we lived in Millport, and when the power went out in Millport, it stayed out. Uh, I think I might have even mentioned that to you guys before. When we lived there, uh, also, it wasn't just that the power would go out, because you think, oh, the power goes out. If it happens in Meridian, you're like, well, I'll just get on my phone and use my 5G and watch Netflix or something and just pass the time, because we are weak and we need technology because we're pathetic, okay? Um, we being my generation, apparently, because some of you guys could handle it just fine. But out in Millport, no cell service. Okay, and so when power goes out, you also don't have a phone for anything other than a flashlight and maybe some offline games that you may want to play. But that meant other things too. You, first of all, you immediately go into phone battery conservation mode, which usually when the power went out, you weren't expecting it. It would be raining outside. It'd just be a nice calm day and all of a sudden, boom, you're gone for eight hours. And you're on 20% battery and you're just toast, okay? Uh, but that also meant, obviously, no TV, because there's no power, no social media, because there's no internet or no phone service. Uh, by the way, all of our kids sleep with sound machines that are plugged into the wall, and so when the power went out when we lived in Millport, uh, all the kids woke up, so that was just fun, really fun whenever it happened. And it always happened at night, too. It never happened during the day. It only happened at night, and so when the power went out, all the sound machines turned off, all of a sudden, all in unison, like a chorus of annoyance. The kids just start screaming together. Uh, not just that, but you know, you have limited warm showers then because the water in the water heater is warm for now. You better take your shower quickly because it's going to soon be lukewarm, which isn't really warm at all, right? And then it becomes cold because you want a hot shower. But I couldn't tell you how many cold showers I took by candlelight. And also you have to keep the refrigerator shut because you can't let out the cold air. Things will spoil in there. You can't open the freezer. Same reason. The microwave doesn't work. The electric stove doesn't work. Again, I'm pathetic, all right? I'm just venting those things. So you have a meal that consists of dinner that night being crackers and water and a cold shower. Just sounds like a great night. Now, many of you who came up in the good old days would have fared just fine, and you think that I'm ridiculous for saying those things, and that's okay. But I say that to say this, that not being connected to a power source in our increasingly electronic day and age reminds us to varying degrees just how power-dependent we are. And I'll say that again, that power dependence in a material world is a weakness. But I'm going to contrast that by saying this. Power dependence in the Christian life is a necessary strength. Power dependence in the Christian life, not in the material world, but in the Christian life, 
is a necessary strength. The Christian life is at its very center power dependent. We do well to constantly remind ourselves, in other words, of our lack. Paul even said it to say, when I'm weak, then I am what? Strong. And it's not because of his strength. It's because of God's strength in him that we would do well to remind ourselves that we are weak. We must be in order to see and, and have advantageous vision of the strength of our God, of who we would be without who God is and what he has done and is doing. The passage we're going to look at this morning, we see the impact of who God is and what he is doing collides firsthand with the disciples in our passage. The mission to which Jesus was calling them would be a power-dependent mission. To be who they and we are called to be, it's essential that we remain plugged in to our source. And that's the theme that we're going to keep in mind as we look at our passage this morning, okay? So look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23 with me today. John 20, 19 through 23 says this. On the evening of that day, that's the first day of the week, Sunday, the day that Jesus is resurrected, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Just for context, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, what we've seen to this point, again, are the most important events that have ever occurred in the history of mankind. How's that for a statement? Jesus has been crucified, wrongfully convicted of a crime he did not commit, but the crime being bearing the sins of many he was willing to commit. He bore the sins of mankind, died on the cross of Christ, bore the curse that we may bear righteousness substitutionary atonement as we call it right but he didn't stay dead he was resurrected he was seen as a resurrected man firstborn of the new creation in the place where creation began in a garden as Adam's sin ushered in a curse of separation from God for all men Jesus is now ushering in rescue for sinners and reconciliation to God for all who may believe from far off to near by his blood by his resurrection and on this first day the new day new creation Sunday Jesus has done a few things. We have read all these. We've read one of them or a couple of them. Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he also appeared to other women on their way back to Bethany from his tomb. We also read in another gospel that he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He mentioned also, we see also that he appeared to Peter as a resurrected man. And now in John, we see that he appears to the rest of his disciples, minus Thomas, and we'll see that soon as well. From morning last week, M-O-R, the morning time, to evening in our passage this morning. In our text today, by looking at a sort of great commissioning, a sending out by Jesus, not the one we see in Matthew 28, but one similar to it, we're going to see what a benefit we gain by being dependent on being plugged into our source, who he is and what he has done and is doing. 
So if you're taking notes this morning, I've got a couple things for you that I'm going to leave with you guys. And sort of what I'm going to call the plugged-in produce. Not produce, but produce. Like what you get at the supermarket, right? At Walmart or Kroger. Who says supermarket anymore? Do we even do that anymore? Like Walmart. You go to Walmart, you go to the produce. What is it? The fruit. And so that's what, the, what I want to have in mind today. I've got two of these produces for you. Number one is this. Plugging into peace produces joy. Plugging into peace produces the fruit of that. Plugging into peace is joy. We're going to see something pretty neat here. There's something to be learned from the reactions of the witnesses of the resurrection. Again, we looked at John and at Mary last week. John in a a sort of indirect witness of that. Mary seeing the risen Christ. But there's something for us in the response of the ten disciples gathered in this locked room. Look at the beginning of verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews stop there for just a second. It says, for fear of the Jews, they were afraid of them. And the reason why they were afraid of them is that they were afraid due to guilt by association. Remember, Jesus, don't forget, this is just hours ago, days, a couple days ago, Jesus was a convicted state criminal, an enemy of the state, okay? They were his best buddies. If that happened in our world, if someone was an enemy of the state, then the best buddies would be under massive surveillance and maybe even themselves be arrested as co-conspirators. And that's exactly what they were afraid of for fear of the Jewish leaders. The ones that had Jesus arrested and killed, murdered, they were afraid by, by uh, association. And also add to that the fact that his body's now missing. You see what I'm saying? They got a good reason to be afraid. The body's missing. Oh, they're going to look to his best friends. They felt like they had a warrant out for their arrest, and so they weren't ready to go be social butterflies. But look at the rest of verse 19. For fear of the Jews, it says, Jesus came, let me back up for just a second, the doors being locked where the disciples were. That's an important detail for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. Notice it doesn't say he knocked on the door. He came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It's meant to be understood as a supernatural appearing. The doors were locked, and whether Jesus supernaturally passed through physical walls or appeared out of thin air or supernaturally opened locked doors, the main thrust is that he supernaturally showed himself to his disciples. Now, last time that most of these guys saw him, remember, only Peter, uh, or only Peter has seen him in the flesh of the disciples. John had seen a hint of that. Last time John saw Jesus was um, when he was uh, crucified, right? So, the last time most of these guys, the ten, had seen him was when he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They weren't even at the trial for fear of the Jews. They weren't at the crucifixion for fear of the Jews. And so that's the last time that they had seen him. And so what's going to happen is he's going to appear before them supernaturally, and he's going to gesture to his wounds, shows his hands to show them they did not imagine the events of the weekend. Jesus was murdered, and he's now alive. And John does something interesting here that I'm going to point out, and we're going to talk about for just a second. He emphasizes a common Jewish greeting. Peace be with you, Jesus says. The words that he would say here are shalom aleichem, peace be with you, while gesturing to his body to prove the miracle to them. Peace be with you, shalom aleichem, a very common greeting, but he says, look at my hands. Another gospel tells us he also gestured to his feet, who had a nail through them. And he said, look at my side. It really happened. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples it says, we're glad when they saw the Lord. 
a typical Jewish person would have at first hearing thought nothing of this greeting. Again, it's very common, peace be with you. But it's repeated in verse 21, which we'll read momentarily. It's also repeated again in verse 26, which we'll look at next time. It's repeated, in other words, for emphasis. And when John does that, which he does it often, when he repeats something, it's repeated for emphasis. The reflective hearer, in other words, not just the person that's in the passage, in the context where they hear a very common greeting, but you and I, a reflective hearer and reader, may recall that not too long ago when we were looking through this book, that Jesus had assured his disciples before the cross that peace was coming. John 16, verse 33. Please don't miss this. I have said these things to you, these things would be the fact that he's leaving them. That in me, you may have peace. In the world, please hear this, in the world, you will have tribulation, the opposite of peace. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He tells them they're going to have peace. In a time when he's saying, I'm out, I'm about to be crucified, you're going to be an enemy of the world peace be with you. Does that make sense? It's a very confusing, a confusing thing for Jesus to say. Peace, historical tradition tells us that all but one of these guys looking at the resurrected Jesus would be martyred. Does that sound like peace? But Jesus is speaking much bigger than peace with men. Again, he's already told them the world will hate you because it hated me. No, the emphasis and reminder that Jesus brings peace to his disciples is a declaration that though they are in clear and present danger, by his wounds, he has bought cosmic peace for cosmic criminals, transgressors against a holy God, that we may not have external peace, Jesus is telling his disciples, but inside, internally, though things on the outside may feel like they're falling apart, Jesus can make this amazing declaration, peace be with you. Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah was Jesus' favorite Old Testament book. I mean, he's always quoting the book of Isaiah. Hey, Isaiah. Isaiah's there. I love you, man. You're my favorite, too. Isaiah 53, 5. Listen to this. I want you to just hear the echo of peace and how it's bought. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced. Remember the wounds. He just showed them, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that bought us, brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Do you hear all I mean it's like a copy and paste almost. Almost like this is a commentary to the very moment that we're looking at in John this morning. Jesus' statement appears before them, boom, supernaturally. Peace be with you. Look at the wounds. It is the ultimate compliment of the last declaration that he made before his death, it is finished. Peace is purchased. It is with you. The peace of reconciliation to and life with God are now completed in the resurrection. No more, no more at enmity, transgressors, but now forevermore, peace with God among men. You see, they would soon feel overcome by the world but Jesus would have them know that he had overcome the world. So let's look at their reaction to this declaration, despite their perilous conditions. I want to look one more time. It says, after Jesus has said, peace be with you, he gestures to his wounds and he says, 
It says, then the disciples, in verse 20, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, their master. They were glad. Gladness. Makes you wonder, couldn't John throw in some bold or italics there, some emojis? You think that this would be a place where John used emojis, right? If this was written in the 21st century, he would be, he would put all these uh, birthday cakes and uh, happy faces and like mind explosion emojis. You guys know what I'm talking about? Glad? I mean, surely this sells far short what really was happening in the hearts of these guys. Their best friend Jesus, who says, I'm out of here. They've seen him murdered, crucified, shamed publicly, and now he appears before them and says, that really happened and I'm alive. John, gladness. <laughs> Certainly glad sells short what this moment must have looked like and felt like. Luke also tells us that they had joyous disbelief is the word that, maybe he's a little bit of a better writer it seems. Joyous disbelief it says. Marveling is the words, or the words that Luke uses. John uses gladness. Now, when you receive good news, the natural reaction is gladness, right? And I, I know it's funny that John uses that little word, gladness, but I want to just anchor there for a second. You really can't help it when you receive good news. Gladness is the natural reaction. You receive good news, naturally you're going to be glad. That's why when you're in a, a stadium full of people at a football game or a baseball game, say, say your team in a baseball or a football gets a, a touchdown and you're surrounded by hundreds or maybe thousands or even tens of thousands of people if you're anywhere other than Mississippi State, but I should have said that. Forget that. You're at a big football game and there's people all around, right? And if your team scores a touchdown, you know what doesn't happen? Everybody doesn't say, that was a touchdown. We, hey, let's all be glad together. Let, ready? One, two, yay! Why doesn't that happen? Because that'd be really weird. No, it doesn't happen because when you see something good that happens in your favor, good news, you don't have to think about that and say, hey, we should be glad, everybody. It's a natural reaction. Not just that, you receive a good grade. You're glad. You don't have to think about it. Hey, this is a good thing. No, you're naturally glad. You get a raise or a promotion. God provides gladness. When the doctor says the cancer is in remission, gladness. You don't have to think to yourself, this is good news. I should be glad. It's natural. When the tests come back negative, God answers prayer, and therefore you are glad. You don't have to think about it. It's a natural response to naturally amazing news. You don't have to think to yourself, I should be glad about this, and then you start to smile. No, you don't have to, because gladness is the natural response to good news. And here's why I say that. Christian, church, we have more reason than anyone in the world to be marked by a permanent and persevering state of gladness. Now, let's be realistic. There have been and will be brutal days ahead Days where gladness may feel far from you, and you may be in that time right now. And that's why I use that modifier when talking about gladness, persevering gladness. Because there are days when gladness will be far from you. And you may be there right now. But I say persevering gladness that is permanent, because though it may waver, at the end of the day, the reason for your gladness never will. You see, the disciples knew the pain of bad circumstances. They would eventually be headhunted. But if your joy is not brought by your circumstances, then your joy cannot be snatched away by your circumstances. I'll say that again. If your joy is not brought by your circumstances, then your joy cannot be snatched away 
by your circumstances. Your joy, in other words, is not based on your bank account, your relationship, or your marriage. It's not based on your self-esteem and your ability to perform or be good enough. Your joy isn't based on how people have been treating you, how well you've held up against temptation today or that week. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that when listing the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, Paul says love, but then he puts joy and peace right before patience. Joy and peace, patience. The things that don't make you happy pinned up right there next against the joy and the peace that we have in Jesus. How can Christian gladness persevere all things? Please hear this. Because your joy is based on the imperishable, undefiled truth that you were once far off, dead in your sin, but have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Untouchable gladness. And it's not that your gladness won't take a beating. It's just that at the end of the day, there's no beating you can face in life that will ever alter that your life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3, 3. And again, during that farewell discourse in which Jesus tells the 11 that they will be hated because of the fact that they are his, he could say in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The ones that will be hated, full of joy. There's something jarring to be heard there. And yet, it seems like Christians, Christians can be some of the brightest and most glad of people. And Christians can be some of the most miserable, scowling, ugly of people. That just doesn't compute, does it? Guys, don't be the person, the Christian, with a perpetual scowl on their face. Be filled with gladness. When we're in here, sing with a glad heart. Don't you have reason to be glad? When you're here, and even when you hear the word being preached, I think I'm sharing good news. Listen with a glad heart. This is good news, church. The natural reaction to good news is what? It's gladness. When you go out there, not just into the gathering space when we're about to eat and have fun together and be glad there, but when you go out there, be an ambassador of gladness. Bless people. Parent with a glad heart. Speak to other people with a glad heart. Give of your time, of your money with a glad heart. Encourage other people with a glad heart. Because you have reason to, I think. But by looking at some of us, you doubt it. Be marked by perpetual, persevering gladness. We got reason to, church. It's our DNA. Because peace with you, as Jesus said, is through the work of Jesus. Peace that produces joy. The second thing is this. Plugged in produce. It's plugging into power produces missional living. Plugging into power produces missional living. 
There's a lot of things to be said here. I'm going to say just a few of them. The sent one named Jesus has become the sender as he commissions his disciples. And what we're going to see here, and I'm not going to point it out as we're reading it, but we see a Trinitarian approach to this passage. Jesus is saying, I was sent, i.e. the Father. And then he says, I'm, t- I'm the one talking. And then he says, I'm going to give you my spirit. So you, all three, right? And we just sang about Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three are at work here, clearly. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus was well equipped for such a lofty mission. He is God, in fact, but his disciples had proven their weakness. How could Jesus call them to continue his mission that they couldn't even take up any sort of mission? How could he call them to such a thing? Because the same God who gave Jesus power, because he is God, is going to give power on high through the Spirit of God to his disciples, then and now. By his empowering. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Can we just pause for a second and realize how weird that is? Okay, if that happened in any of the context, if I just went, be like, we need to get out of here, honey. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a strange occurrence. Again, we know the context, but it's a strange thing that's just happened. I want to explain it for a moment. First of all, this is not Pentecost, the time when all of the, the disciples of God received the Holy Spirit. When he rushed upon them in Acts chapter 2 where Jesus is absent. He's with the Father. A mighty wind rushes into the room with the disciples in Acts chapter 2. They begin speaking different languages with witnesses all around, and they're like, these guys don't speak all these languages. This is a work of the Spirit of God. That's Pentecost. This is not that. And so this is not the moment that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit to the fullest degree as we are today. This was a sign of what was to come. No reason to think that receive the Holy Spirit, which is the command here, is a command to be accomplished immediately. And that Jesus has done this before. Again, this is not something that's accomplished immediately, but a sign of what is to come. He did this in John chapter 13, verse 8, uh, where it's best illustrated when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. John 13, 8 says, Peter said to him, again, when he's washing the disciples' feet, he says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, he wasn't saying, I have to wash your feet. And when I finish washing your little feet, then you can be my child. That's not what he's saying. He was saying that this is a foreshadowing of a different washing that was to come. And where did that washing take place? It didn't happen at a table with a bowl of water. It happened at his blood being poured out at Calvary, right? But he can say here, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. At a simple level, it's just a foot washing. But at a sign level, it points forward to a spiritual washing achieved by the blood of the Lamb whose death takes away the sins of the world. It's a sign. And this breathing, I would argue, is also a sign. It's an acted out parable pointing to Pentecost that was to come later. And so he's saying, receive the Spirit of God, because you will, as you go on this mission. It's going to happen later, but it's an acted out parable what is to come. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, though, because it doesn't impact the point of the passage. The passage is that the scene is funny to imagine. Jesus is breathing on them. Again, I, I just can't get the image out of my mind that this is a weird thing that Jesus has just done. Can you imagine? Just imagine that. Your friend's sitting there, and he's just like, receive God's spirit my son that's weird to me but then he makes that last statement is a hyper lofty statement for Jesus to make I mean the Holy Spirit is only mentioned as active 22 times in their Bibles in the Old Testament you got a group full of fishermen carpenters tax collectors 22 times 
the Spirit of God is mentioned as active in their whole Bibles, the Old Testament. And now Jesus, the Son of God, says, all you guys, he's going to work in you. That's a pretty lofty statement, is it not? The word here, by the way, the reason Jesus does this breathing gesture, which again is weird, but the reason it's not that weird and actually makes sense is because this is pretty clever what Jesus is doing. I've mentioned this before, but the word for breathe and the word for spirit are come from the same word, pneuma. It's where we get the word pneumonia, the wind disease, right? And so when Jesus is breathing on them, he's literally saying, I'm, I'm spiriting on you. <sighs> Breathes on them. You're going to have a, a wind come upon you, is what he's saying. So it's really a clever analogy that he's using. As he breathes on them, he's saying a different sort of wind will rush onto you. Basically what's happening here in the literal language is he breathed on them and said to them, receive the holy breath, the wind. It's a metaphorical sign of a different breath that would be blown into them, God's oxygen. Whether now or later, the point is that the followers of Jesus will continue the mission, not by their power, and this is the point, but by the power of their God, a different kind of wind, air. For he is the only way that they and we can accomplish the mission of proclaiming the gospel. Look then at verse 23. About this mission, he says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's not saying you can be stingy about who you want to save. That's not what he's saying here. What this passage means is they are forgiven them. It literally is more better translated to say they stand forgiving, it, forgiven. It's a passive voice. If you say someone is forgiven, then they stand forgiven. But passive voice means that it's something that's happening to them. In other words, the disciples are not the ones that give them the state of forgiveness, even though they sort of are at the same time. The passage is not saying that Christians have the authority to grant saving forgiveness or to withhold it. Rather, the gist is that in a sense, we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven, like Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 8, because the gospel message is the key. If there's a locked door, you got to have a key. And he's saying to the disciples, if you want people to walk through the door, you better give them the key. We aren't the ones who grant someone forgiveness, but unless we preach forgiveness of sins, the gospel, people will not be forgiven. No one may enter until he or she trusts in Christ through the gospel message. So Romans 10, 14, a passage you may know, says this, how then will they call on him in whom they've not heard or not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom, of whom they have never heard? How, can they, how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's a mandated instruction. Jesus is saying, guys, if you want to be world changers, if you want to see God change the world, if you want to see people come to saving faith in Jesus, go see about it that it's done. Otherwise, it ain't going to get done. Carry the key. The analogy I've chosen to mention because, guys, we have a key to God's house. The door's locked, remains locked without the key. But having the key doesn't guarantee that someone will walk through the door. But if you don't turn the key, there's no way they may enter. My paraphrase of verse 23 is that if you withhold the gospel, that person won't be led to Christ, at least not by you. But you have the key, give it a turn, and see what God does. You know, we live in a culture, we live in a culture of, and I think that part of this is healthy, so don't get me wrong. We live in a culture of sadness and frustration toward the state of the world. And I think we should. That we as Christians, we should be sad and frustrated 
right? About the state of our world. We see evidences of that all over the place, of the brokenness and despair of our world, don't we? And we as Christians should bear that burden heavily and say, this is not the way God designed it. It shouldn't be this way. But it's weird and wrong that we who are so sad and frustrated about the state of our world also have so much evangelistic laziness. How can we say that we're broken about the state of the world and then put the keys in our pocket and say, I'm not going to give you a chance? That sounds pretty counterintuitive, does it not? Coupling that frustration, which I think is healthy, but the evangelistic laziness and disobedience, it doesn't make a lot of sense. May we be evangelistic in our lifestyles. The purpose of this commissioning of Jesus is that we have an impossible mission, but we have a powerful aid that makes the impossible look like child's play, the spirit of God. And Jesus' fight, don't miss this, Jesus' fight in this world was against sin, for the hurting, and in pursuit of a lost and dying world. And his fight required the power of God. Now, church, we are sent to join the fight. But you would be a fool to take up the fight without being near the source of your power. You can't be a world changer, expect God to change the world, if you don't walk with the Spirit of God, who is the, the reason that we may go and accomplish our mission. If we relegate him to our closet and say, I'm not going to spend any time with you. We keep shut God's word and say, I mean, yeah, I want to go and I want to see, uh, I want to be obedient. I want to defeat sin. I want to see my, my coworker become a believer in Jesus. And yet our fellowship with God stays and collects dust. How can we say that? Ephesians 6, you know what is the pastor, passage that talks about the armor of God. It says that you have daily flaming darts headed your way, and your Bible and the Spirit's equipping are a helmet, a breastplate, and a sword. You would be dumbfounded to hear that our nation's military rushed into battle without being properly equipped for battle, right? Right. You'd be dumbfounded about that. But you and I dare to rise each morning and go out naked under an onslaught of flaming darts from the evil one. How foolish is that? How foolish is that? If you want to be equipped for the battle, Jesus' fight against your sin, to love and care for the hurting, and to pursue a lost and dying world with the gospel of Jesus, if you want to take up that fight, then I got news for you. You need the power of God right by your side, in front of you. A sword, a breastplate, a helmet. Here, and on your knees, begging God to empower you for the mission. Schedule time to become equipped daily. As a family together, you want to teach your kids? So many of you guys will talk to your kids about the dangers of the sexual revolution. We'll talk to your kids about the fact that the world is going awry, astray. And yet, so few of you 
will take up the asset of having Bible study with them. Does that make sense? To send them into battle without a sword? To send them under the darts without a helmet? Are you marked by evangelistic laziness? Set a goal. One person per week that you just want to tell them that God loves them. One person per week that you want to have a sort of gospel conversation with them. And don't just set an evangelistic goal and say, I'm going to do, do, do this. Commit to pray for them. You want to see a world changed? How about we talk to the one that can change it? In verse 23, Jesus is calling them to take the gospel keys and unlock the door. But I want you to understand something. Jesus never calls anybody to force them through the doorway. And this is what I mean by saying that. I don't want you to be discouraged by failure. Because evangelistic success, please hear me say this, evangelistic success does not look like how many conversions you've put under your belt. Evangelistic success looks like the fact that you have been faithful to sow the seed and trusted God to do the changing. I think that the reason so many of us are fearful of evangelism is because we are fearful of rejection, of being asked a question that we don't know the answer to. God doesn't call you to know the answer to every question. You can't. I don't. He calls you to be faithful, church, to sow the seed and trust him to work in people's hearts. Are you plugged in to the source of our peace, to the source of our power? Our youngest daughter, her name is Eden, and uh, Eden is two. She'll tell you, how old are you, Eden? Two? She can't do this, just two? And she's adorable. I think she's the most adorable uh, person I've ever seen that's her age. I can say that because my other kids aren't her age. I'm not playing favorites. Eden is adorable, and um, unfortunate for us, um, she's hard to deal with at times because she's so adorable. Because you're like, oh, she's so precious, and some of you guys are like, oh, does she ever do anything wrong? And I'm like, just come over. You know, we'll, we'll just spend you know about five minutes with her, and you'll see. But she's got a heck of an attitude, y'all. Uh, we call her uh, Tootie, which just sounded cute at the time, but now we know that it was short for Attitudie. And I think I've told you guys that before. So we've now, uh, we, you know, since she was a little baby, you know, we, we put her shoes on for her because she's a little kid, right? And so uh, when we put her shoes on her, she can't do anything. She'll come up and say, Sheh, which means shoes, put her shoes on her. So she brings them to us. She throws them in her hamper instead of putting them in her closet. It's adorable. But anyway, she brings us her sandals and says, put the shoes on. And so we do, and we've done that for literally her entire life. But recently, when it's time to put her shoes on, um, specifically with these pink sandals that she loves, but she can't do them by herself, she grabs them and sits up on her bed, and obviously I go sit next to her, and this happened to Brooke as well. I, I grab the shoe from her, and I'm going to help her put it on, and she snatched that thing away from me. No, Daddy, because she wants to do it herself. And I'm like, you're not allowed to grow up, right? <laughs> but she snatches them away, and then we have to rebuke her because she's a little sinner too, just like us. But as silly as that sounds, it's a good thing, right, that she becomes more independent. 
It's a really good thing. Praise God that our kids become independent. Goodness. The older she gets, the less she needs her father. That's not the way the Christian life works. The more mature she gets, the less she needs her father. Guys, the Christian life is the exact opposite. Please don't miss this. As you mature in Christ, you will see the exact opposite effect is that you can't face a single day without him. You're a fool if you think that you can snatch life away and say, I can do this. No, daddy. No, father. And we scoff at that and think, well, of course not. But how often? How often do we tell the father, I can't do it without you, daddy. Father, I can't do anything without you. Do we begin our day that way? Do we prepare for hard conversations that way? Or are we perpetually snatching everything out of the Father's hands and saying, I can do it? Can I just tell you this? God supplies within you what he requires of you. God supplies in you what he requires of you. And that's why his disciples could be the recipients of such profound words, peace be with you. That our peace produces gladness. That our power empowers us into the mission. What you are called to be is not who you can be alone.